If you would stand with me for the reading of Scripture, I'll be reading from Nehemiah chapter 7. Now it came about when the wall was rebuilt and I had set, the, set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed, that I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Then I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post, and each in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not yet built. I'll pray. God, I thank you again for your word and this great privilege we have to gather together in your name and to hear you through your word. We pray that would be the case, God, that, that our hearts would be open to you and that you'd be free and unrestrained in speaking to us all that you desire. Thank you, God, again for this privilege, and, um, and we look to you, Lord Jesus, to minister to us. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, I didn't... I, if you weren't here for the Sunday school class, we have a missionary couple from Rio Grande Bible Institute that are visiting with us, David and Nellie Leola. Um, tremendous ministry, Rio Grande Bible Institute. If you don't know anything about them, they're down in Edinburgh. Um, they've been there for a long time, and they have a dual ministry of training um, English-speaking people who want to go to Latin America. They train them in Spanish. And one of the unique things that they do that I understand is that they will work with you to learn Spanish in the dialect that you will be ministering to. So you don't go down talking like a Mexican if you're going to Argentina. And so they will, will teach you Spanish in accordance with the region that you'll be serving in. But the other thing is, is they bring in um, students from all over Latin America to study the Bible and go back as, as pastors and church leaders um, in their various countries. And to make sure that they go back, they try to isolate them so that they don't learn English while they're here because they don't want them to stay here. At His Hill, over the years, we've had um, a lot of opportunity to take um, African students, and in 30 years of accepting African students, we only had one that ever went home. And so it's a significant problem uh, to bring in people from third world countries, get them trained, and then have them go home. And so I really appreciate that Rio Grande Bible Institute is doing a, a great job getting people back into Latin America. And as David was saying, there's also many doors that are opening up now to go into Muslim countries, um, that Latinos are, are readily accepted in Muslim countries where others might not be. But the thing that I've appreciated probably most about Rio Grande Bible Institute is how Christ-centered they've been. Just a tremendous ministry. Major Ian Thomas used to minister down there on a, on a yearly basis. One of our former guest speakers at His Hill, um, Dr. John Dale, used to teach down there every week for their spiritual life conference, and he always taught on the cross of Christ. And, um, and he was just so encouraging to me about what was going on there. And so it's been a ministry that I've prayed for, and, and um, I'm glad our church supports in a small way, and would encourage you to pray and support for them and, and, and support them as well. It's just a great ministry. So appreciate you all being with us today. Um, we're in chapter 7 here, and this is, again, one of those places in Scripture where you go, okay, God, uh, it's inspired, it's inerrant, obviously it's important, 
but it's an easy one to skip over. Uh, we already saw one of those with Nehemiah and back in Ezra as well. This is mainly a chapter of genealogy, and it's the same genealogy that was given in Ezra. So again, God thinks it's important enough for us to get it twice. And um, it would be monumental, almost miraculous, if I could read through this genealogy and not butcher every word. So I'm not even going to try. But I just want to make some application here as we get through the text. But what is happening here, again, you recall that the walls have been completed. That's huge. The temple has been completed. And now you think, well, just, um, you know, go home. Nehemiah can just go home. He's done what he came to do. He rebuilt the city walls. But there's so much more that needs to happen. And if you were to <coughs> try to maybe list this in order of priority, I think we'd put temple and walls first as they need to be. But these other things are not without significance. They are not inconsequential. They're very important things that need to happen. They're not details that can be left undone. And the primary things that are happening in this chapter are that they are, they've set the doors up. That's important. They're appointing gatekeepers over the city. And they're also appointing um, singers and Levites. Well, what's with that? And then they give this recounting of the genealogy so that they can figure out who is purely Jewish and who is not. Who can identify with certainty that they are from one of the 12 tribes of Israel and who can't prove it. And that's also important. So these are not just mere peripheral details. These things are actually very important. Um, I don't know if you've ever gone to one of the Brazilian steakhouses to eat. I've done that a couple times. It's a real privilege and a rare event. And the first time I went to one, you know, I mean, I, I, I did what they want you to do, and I went to the salad bar. The second time I went, I said, I will never go to the salad bar again because I'm not here to pay for salad. I'm here for the meat. Oh. And, um, and they will bring like 20 different kinds of meat to you on skewers, and you can just eat till you bust. And so that's the main thing. The salad I treat as a peripheral detail. But we should never do that when we come to God's Word. The other evening, I had all the staff men at His Hill over to the house for dinner, and we had steaks and baked potato and green beans and ice cream bars because I can't make dessert. And um, all the steaks were ribeyes, and they were all at least a pound. And these guys... When we were done, we, I think we had almost all the baked potatoes we started with still on the table, and almost all the green beans we started with still on the table. They ate the steaks and the ice cream bars. <laughs> Everything else were just details. If you were to go to a wedding and somebody forgot to bring the, the rings, you would go, that's not a small detail. You don't forget the rings at a wedding. If you forget to put the oil in your car or to put fluid in the radiator, that is not a small detail. Details matter. If you forget to pay the IRS, that is not a small detail. These details matter. So this chapter starts and it says, Now it came about when the wall was rebuilt and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. Gatekeepers, singers, and Levites. Now that's actually mentioned three times in this chapter. So clearly it's something that's important. Gatekeepers, singers, and Levites. 
the gatekeepers, what it sounds like, they were the men who would make sure that only those that they wanted would come into the city and that everybody who came into the city who was just visiting would get out when it was night. And so that comes <coughs> a little later um, in the paragraph. And then he says, and I, I'll come back to the gatekeepers, cities, um, singers, and Levites in a minute. And I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. So this is one of our first ideas. Well, if you don't know anything about gatekeepers, clearly it's an important title, an important role, because he puts the two best men he can find in charge of what is not a menial task. It's a very, very important task. One, his brother, who was the man who came to him initially when he was still in Persia and, and reported to him all that was going on in the bad um, situation of the city. And now Hananiah, a faithful man who feared God more than many. Scripture says, and it was um, mentioned this morning in the Sunday school hour, Timothy was exhorted by Paul, these things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach also others also. This is a major theme in Scripture, faithfulness. When you come to Hebrews chapter 11, the reason that all those individuals are, are mentioned is because of their faith and their faithfulness. I went to a funeral, Patsy and I did on Friday, of a, of a man that we've known for many years, over 40 years, and, um, and in the course of the comments that the pastor was making, he, he told us that this man, a retired colonel in the Air Force, um, he did not come to know Christ until he was 50 years old. Four children, had done a great job raising his kids, was absolutely involved and invested in their lives, and they loved their dad, and they had nothing but good things to say about how he invested in each of their lives. They all came to Christ before he did through programs that were going on in the public high school, mainly Christian musicians that were coming in and singing at the school, and through that, all four of those kids came to faith in Christ. And so the dad said to his kids, I need what you have because I don't want there to be a barrier between us. Wow. And so the man began to search and to ask questions, and at 50 years old, he received Christ, and he lived to be 97. Now, he was faithful for the first 50 years of his life. His four children would say he was nothing but a faithful man. And he was faithful after he received Christ. So clearly, you can be an unbeliever and be faithful. But not as God sees it. Again, God sees, yes, an unbeliever can tell the truth. God knows that. An unbeliever can be faithful. God knows that. But does it credit as a righteousness that will get you saved? Because God says, there's a faithful person. That man was faithful to his wedding vows all the days of his life. That man was faithful to his children. He was faithful to his employers. God recognizes that. We need to as well. It's not a bad thing. But the scripture says our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. It will never be good enough to give you right standing before God. It will never be good enough to earn salvation. But yes, unbelievers can be faithful. But as God looks at it, it's not, there is no virtue that is truly virtuous to God unless it comes from God. Because the scripture says there is only one who is good, 
And who's that? God. Not you or me. And so goodness is derived from being in a relationship with God who is good. And so the only way that you're going to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant, is if there is faith that inspired the faithfulness. If there was dependence upon God, which was the reason you were faithful. Otherwise, it's you being faithful apart from God, and whatever is not of faith, including faithfulness, is sin. Wow. With, with me, if you would, turn to Matthew 24, and we're going to look at some parables here that Jesus gave on faithfulness and faithlessness, starting in Matthew 24. And we'll be right back brief, briefly to Nehemiah 7. So, <clears throat> if I'm in the right place, I'm not. Okay, 24, verse 45. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Now, so far, there's no indication of faith here, only of faithfulness, right? Jesus doesn't mention faith. He mentions being faithful, that good and faithful servant, that faithful and sensible servant. There's no reason to read faith into this. But look now at verse, at verse 48. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, and he shall begin to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour which he does not know. And he shall cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Weeping shall be there and the gnashing of teeth. Wow. I'll leave that to explain to your children at another time. <laughs> now, what, what makes this man so wicked? Well, he didn't do what the master said. He was not faithful. Why was he not faithful? Because of something he didn't believe. He didn't believe the master would come back anytime soon. So his lack of faith is what inspired his faithlessness. And it was faith that inspired his faithfulness, you see? Now the same thing is true with the ten virgins of chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out <laughs> to meet the bridegroom. <clears throat> and five of them were foolish, and five were prudent. And when the foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. Now, you have to remember these lamps, you could, you, could, you could hide in your hand. They're little bitty things. They only take maybe an ounce or two of oil. And so anybody who takes one of those little lamps with not oil enough to replenish it doesn't believe they're going to have to wait very long. Because that little bit of oil is only going to be good for an hour or two max. And so you if, they, if they didn't take enough oil to last through the night, then why? Because they don't believe he's coming soon. So it was a lack of faith that meant that that, in, that was the reason for their being imprudent while the others were being prudent. The others believed he was coming and they needed to be ready whether it's a short time or a long time. Now look at the parable of the talents, verse 14. For it is like a man about to go on a journey, and he called his own slaves, and he entrusted his possessions to them. He gave one five talents, to another two, and to another one one, each according to his own ability, and he went to his, on his journey. 
<coughs> and immediately the one who had received the five talents went out and traded them, and he gained five more talents, 100% increase on his investment. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. He also has 100% in, in, um, um, increase on his investment. But he who received the one talent went away and dug in the ground and he hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Interesting. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The one who had received two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted to me two talents. See, I have gained two more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you, where you scattered no seed. That's an insult. Gathering where you, where, you, where, you, where you didn't plant, that makes him a thief. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have, you have what is yours. I didn't lose your money. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. And then he goes on to assign him a place in the outer darkness. Now, here's the thing that I didn't know for a long time about that third slave. Why didn't he put the money in the bank? Because he would have had to put the money in the bank in his master's name. It wasn't his money. So he would never get it. See, he was, he was hoping the master would never return. And so if the master never returned and he just buried the money, then he keeps it. He didn't believe the master would come again. The other two slaves said, we don't know when he's coming back, but he's coming back. Belief inspired their faithfulness. The other guy had no faith that the master would return and had no faithfulness. I think that's the lesson here. Yes, an unbeliever can show a measure of faithfulness. We all know that. My friend was a faithful man in his own strength. But at 50, he received Christ, and now he's being inspired by God. And if he were here, he would tell you, if there's any good thing in me, it's because of the Lord Jesus Christ and not because of me. Faith inspired his faithfulness. And that's the important thing here that we have to get. God is faithful. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Revelation 19, 11 said concerning Jesus, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. God is faithful. And that's why God calls his people to be faithful. Because God is. And as he is, so we are to be in this world. But I can't be what God is apart from faith in God. No amount of ambition, no amount of commitment will make me be what God is. I can't be holy, I can't be good, I can't be faithful. 
apart from him. God has never intended for us to try to be faithful apart from his divine activity at work within us. Moses, Daniel, David, Lydia, Epaphras, Onesimus, Timothy, Silvanus, Antipas, and all the people mentioned of Hebrews 11 are commended because of their faith and their faithfulness. But you cannot separate the two in God's economy. Faithfulness is to, be, is to be consistent, it is to be constant, it is to keep covenant, it is to be humble, it is to be blameless, it is to be, have integrity that you will not lie, it is to be careful in the small things, it is to be responsible and trustworthy, but above all, it is to have faith. Faith in Christ makes you a Christian, but not all Christians are faithful. That's why Paul has to say to Timothy, entrust these things. He didn't say to Christians, but to entrust these things to faithful men. Because sadly, faith in Christ, though it makes you a Christian, does not make you faithful. Unbelievers, as I've said, can demonstrate a measure of faithfulness. But faithfulness should be the result of faith in Christ. Not striving to be acceptable to Christ, but living from Him. We already have his acceptance. So Nehemiah chooses two men who fear God and are faithful to do what many would consider to be a thankless job, very important job. He says in verse 3, Nehemiah 7, then I said to them, he gives very detailed instructions, <coughs> do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. Why? Because you want to know who you're letting in the city. So people would, merchants would show up early in the morning. They want to get in early. They want to set up their booths. They want to get ready for when the customers first come up, and they want to be ready to go, <coughs> especially if you're selling produce. And I know Patsy's family back in Pennsylvania, they've sold produce for generations, and they are up way before the rooster crows. And they're loading their trucks, and they're driving their trucks to market, and they're getting their stands before the sun ever comes up. That's the way it is. He says, nope, everything's changing. This city won't open up until the sun is hot. And that way you know exactly who you're letting into this city. So there was to be vigilance in how they conducted their affairs. And then he says, and while he says, let them shut and bolt the doors, also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem each at his post and each in front of his own house. So you guys appoint other people. And it'd be really good if you appointed people to help guard the gates who live near the gates because they have a vested interest in making sure that this city is safe. So don't open the gates until you can see who's coming in and don't close the gates until all those people are out of here and appoint other people to assist you who have an interest in what's going on. Very practical but important instructions. And then he says this, verse 4, Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. Now that's a problem. You've got a big city with very few people in it, which means it's vulnerable and it's weak. It needs inhabitants. Because Nehemiah is a man of prayer, we can assume that he took this problem to the Lord. It doesn't say that, but it says in verse 5, then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles. So I think that's a pretty clear inference that he's been talking to the Lord about this problem. What should we do about this big, empty city? 
It needs people. Now, the solution is not going to come until chapter 11, verse 1, so you can look over there quickly. 11, verse 1, it says, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people, I'm sorry, but the rest, uh, um, <coughs> but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other city. So that will be the ultimate solution. An empty city, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to cast lots, and 10% of the people living outside the city are going to be chosen to live in the city. And then the chapter, verse 2 of chapter 11 says, and a bunch of people volunteered, they didn't wait to be chosen. So that will be the solution. But before that comes, they have to know who is pure Jew. And so the Lord put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be enrolled by genealogies. The Lord put it in my heart. And it's a good thing, obviously, because God did it. Now, keep in mind, Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, is written after the fact. So Nehemiah can look back and see God put it on his heart. So in other words, he's not saying to the elders, to the nobles, to the leaders, to the people, hey, guys, God spoke to me and said this is what we need to do. There's no indication he did that. Not that it's wrong to do that, but I don't see any indication that he did. After the fact, he's saying the Lord put it on my heart. And I think that's important to point out because Scripture says wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. And so there's a lot of time that we are tempted to run around as Christians and say, the Lord told me this, God put on my heart, God impressed upon me, and then what we do is utterly foolish. And you look back and go, well, that wasn't God. And now you've got to eat some humble pie, right? I thought that was God, but that wasn't God. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. And when God gives you wisdom then it's going to be evident that it came from God, that it was a truly wise thing to do because the deeds will square with what we know to be true of God and how He works, right? So there ought to be a bit of caution in us before we say, the Lord told me. Let the deeds declare, the Lord told you. Instead of running around saying, this is what God said. Let the deeds speak for themselves because wisdom is vindicated by our deeds. And I think we would be well served as Christians if we said less often, the Lord told me, when we can't point to chapter and verse of what God has said. And again, I believe God speaks to us. I was having lunch this man with a friend, and we were having a friendly little debate over, over this conversation, not even debate. And, I, and I, as a brother, I was saying to him, it's difficult when you... And we have good relationships, so we can talk like this, brother to brother. I said, it's difficult when you are teaching and you will often say, God gave this to me. The Lord told me. And I said, put yourself in the place of the hearer. What do you do with that? You can't question it. You can't say anything. It is a conversation stopper because that you have just spoken with the authority of God. And I, and I don't even have the freedom to go to God's Word and look at it because I'm questioning God if I do. But I told him, the next thing I said in my mouth, that came out of my mouth is, but while I'm talking to you, I am trusting that I am listening to God and that God is directing me in what to say and what not to say. I absolutely believe that God speaks to us, but I don't need to go around saying it all the time. 
because wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. And I may think that God's speaking to me and later walk away and go, I did nothing but hurt a relationship with a brother. And that didn't happen. We walked away friends. It was a good time, a blessed time together by God's grace. So God speaks and he gives wisdom and direction. The assumption here is that Nehemiah was praying about the situation that he's described. And we should be very careful when it comes to declaring what God has said when we can't back it up with chapter and verse. And what did God say to him to do? It wasn't complicated. Find out who is the pure Jew, who can prove their Jewishness, and who can't. And then in chapter 11, inhabit the city with those people. And then, beginning in, in verse 7, we have the record repeated of all those people who had come and left Persia and the various places of the Persian Empire and come back to Israel and Jerusalem. They're all listed here, <coughs> the fathers and how many sons they had. Some big families. In verse 8, the son of Parosh, 2,172 sons. Wow. In verse 11, the sons of Joshua, 2,818. Amazing. Patsy's family has over 300 in it. I tease and I say that our, her family tree is a family shrub. Can you imagine having thousands of people that are your descendants? And some of these men did. And they're all being listed. I believe the reasons, one, is to honor them again for their faith in returning to Israel when so many other Jews were not. This is a small percentage of the total Jews around the world that returned, and they returned in faith. It is to recall God's faithfulness to Israel, that there is a remnant in Israel just as God promised there would be. And it is to set up the basis for leading, serving, and living in the city, and maybe perhaps even reacquiring land that was formerly in the possession of these people when they were taken into, taken into exile. Verses 66 to 67, 68, 69 are accounting of all the animals and servants. And then in verse 70, um, um, about the money that's being given to the temple, so donations that are being made. And then wrapping up the chapter in verse 73, now the priests, the Levites, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, and some of the people, the temple servants, and all of Israel lived in the cities. And again, once again, coming back to the, to the gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites, and now he throws in priests and some of the temple servants. They all lived <coughs> in their cities. So once again, what is this about? The emphasis, gatekeepers, singers, Levites. Gatekeeper speaks for itself. You've got to have guards. Now, without trying to over-spiritualize the text, but again, I, I, you know, there's not a, I don't have a lot of commentaries at my disposal on, on Ezra and Nehemiah. Ones I have, I, I like. They're good. Um, but one is um, J. Vernon McGee, and I've quoted him several times as we've been working through Nehemiah, and, and he's not prone to spiritualize the text. He's a good Dallas Seminary grad. But again, on this text, he is very quick to make the connection between a gatekeeper over a city and a gatekeeper over a family and over a church, and saying it is vital. It is absolutely vital. And I would reference you without going and looking at it to Matthew 18 where Jesus talks about the little ones and the stumbling blocks that come that turn them away from faith in Christ. So, so serious is, is it to be a stumbling block that he says better to have never been born 
Better to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the deepest sea. But actually, that's not quite what Jesus says. That would be true of being a stumbling block. But if you read Matthew 18 carefully, he says, he says, woe to the man who through whom stumbling blocks come. Better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck. So I can go through life, potentially, and never be a stumbling block to my children. And never be a stumbling block to this church. That would be nice to be able to say that. I hope that it's true. But what if I have been one who has allowed them to come? Woe to the man through whom stumbling blocks come. And that's where vigilance really comes in. Especially for dads, moms also, but I think especially for dads. It's difficult to be too vigilant in being careful for our children, for our families, for all the responsibilities that God has given us, to be on guard. And not just being defensive, but building into the lives of those that we've been given responsibility for. A gatekeeper. Don't underestimate the significance. But what about singers? Oh, my. Uh, God would have never called me to be a singer. I auditioned. I didn't audition. I was recruited one time to be a singer. Our church was going to have a youth choir. And the dear music instructor, choir director, would sit at the piano in the church and hit a key. Ding! And she, said, she would say, sing that note. I had no idea what she meant. I, I, I couldn't comprehend how I was supposed to do that. She'd hit a key on the piano. See, that key. I just, I can't even comprehend it. And I tried. I thought gallantly. And um, I was dismissed. <laughs> um, she thought I was trying to be dismissed, and I was not. I, I, I don't like to fail at anything. And I, I did not want to be submissed, submit, um, dismissed. If I was going to do it, I wanted, you know, you're gone. Why singers? One writer says, praise is not superfluous. It is essential. Major Thomas used to say, thanksgiving is the language of faith came across this quote by, that's in J. Vernon McGee's commentary. A pastor friend of his had a sign in his office that said, Joy is the flag that is flown in the heart when the master is in residence. Now, I like that because if you've ever been to Comfort, there's a big mansion that sits up on the hill outside of Comfort. And the original owner of that home lived in San Antonio. And he wasn't there except on the occasional weekend. And you always knew when he was home because they ran the flag up. And if you saw the flag out there, then he's home. So I like that quote. Joy is the flag that is flown in the heart when the master is in residence. And when is the master in residence? 24-7. Every day of the year. The master is in residence. That doesn't mean we don't have sad times, down times, but our master is in residence. Singing is such a vital thing. 
we have friends who have raised their children singing hymns. Amazing. They can't read yet. But the hymns they have in their hearts, unbelievable. What a ministry. We would go to their house. We'd only be in their house once a year. and We'd have dinner with them, and they'd, and they'd go over and sit on the couches, all the kids around. They'd go, kids, which, what's... And they'd take turns, the kids choosing hymns they want to sing. And they'd hang, hang, hand us hymnals because we know we probably don't know all the words. But their little preschool kids can just sing these hymns. Wonderful thing to do. We need it. It is a ministry to us. When a brother or sister has that gift of encouragement, don't you love being around them? It brings the song back into your heart. We need singers in our lives. Those that will exalt spontaneously Christ and all that he is. The Levites, what's that about? You need to understand that there's a distinction between being a Levite and being a priest. All priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. And so a Levite had a, had a narrow job description. The priest could function in the temple, but not a Levite. <coughs> you couldn't just be any ordinary Levite and be qualified for temple service. Only a certain segment of the Levites could be priests. So what did the rest of the Levites do? They were to be the Bible instructors throughout the nation. So they were sprinkled all through the tribes of Israel. Every tribe of Israel had Levitical cities nearby within their tribes or close enough that, they, that God meant that within a day's journey or half a day's journey, anybody could have been sitting under Bible teaching. And so these were the guys that were tasked with not, they didn't own land, they didn't own much property, they were to get their support through their ministry of instructing people in the Word of God. Very significant. And Nehemiah is reestablishing what these Levites were always meant to be doing. The genealogy, again, I pointed out the reasons, some of the reasons why it would have been important to list them. But, we, but here's again an application, a spiritual application. I hope I'm not stretching it. And, is, and, the, and, it, and it is that just as the Jew needed to be able to prove who he is. The Jew needed to be certain of his lineage, of his genealogy, in order to occupy Jerusalem or to serve as a Levite or to serve as a priest. That there could be no question. It had to be absolutely certain who you are. Well, I don't think it's a big stretch to say the same should be true for you and I when it comes to our spiritual heritage. No person who claims faith in Christ has any reason to ever doubt it. It is something that we can be absolutely certain about. More than assured, my favorite verse on this is Romans 4.16, where Paul wrote and he said, For this reason it, justification, is by faith, that it might be in accordance with grace, in order that the promise may be certain. Not kind of sure, but certain, absolutely certain. And then he says this to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, speaking of the Jew, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So we ought to be able to say, I know I am a spiritual descendant of Abraham. 
Just as the Jew could say, I know I am a physical descendant of Abraham. So see, this is not a stretch here. Paul makes this connection. We should be absolutely 100% sure that we are a spiritual descendant of Abraham, that Abraham's faith is our faith. And if Abraham's faith got him reckoned righteous, then our faith also in Christ gets us reckoned as righteous. And it's God who's doing the reckoning. So I'm not sure because of anything I've done. I'm sure because God is a righteous God, and He has said on this basis of faith in Christ and faith in Christ alone, He reckons us righteous. So I go, well, it's done because God is faithful. You see where the faithfulness comes in again? God is faithful. And so I don't have to rest in my faithfulness. I don't even have to think about my faithfulness. I don't have to wonder if I turn away from Christ 10 years from now after walking with Christ for 50 years, does that mean I was never saved? I don't even ask the question. Because I know with absolute certainty that my faith results in salvation. And it's not because, my, it's, it's not because of anything I've done. It's because I'm trusting Christ. I'm not trusting my faith. I don't trust my faith. I trust Christ who has said that He saves those who place their faith in Him. To them, He gives eternal life. So I'm saved. And so, yeah, like anybody else, the thought comes in, well, what, what, what if, what if? Perish the thought. Take it captive. God has said in His Word, we can know with certainty that we are descendants of Abraham. His faith is our faith. His righteousness is the righteousness of Christ, and it's ours as well, simply because we believed in Him. So that being the case, we should all know who we are. We are the children of God. So I just want to, as I wrap it up, I see you got two minutes left. Listen to these verses with me, because I have no doubt there are some folks, just, provide, just chances are very good that there are folks who come to Bernie Bible Church on a regular basis, and you still are not sure. Listen to these verses. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. You know what brought that friend of mine to come to Christ at 50? Yes, the, the witness of his children, but he went to a men's retreat he, as a non-believer, and the man speaking to these men spoke on Cornelius. And he said, Cornelius was a soldier. Cornelius was a faithful soldier, but Cornelius was not a Christian. And this colonel in the Air Force is going, that's me. I'm military, I'm faithful, but I am not a Christian. If you have the Son, Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. And if you don't know Jesus, you do not have eternal life. It's as clear as that. A couple more verses. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Romans 8 9. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Hear His word, believe in Christ, you have eternal life, and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. John 1, 12, one of my favorite verses, as many as received Him. To them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. What does it mean to receive Him? Believe in Him. Do you believe that Jesus Christ alone has paid for your sins and offers you the gift of eternal life? 
And if you believe that Jesus Christ is the only source by which you will ever be in a right relationship with God and have eternal life, on the authority of God's word, you are saved. You have the right to become a child of God, and you are His child. In John 3.16, that we all know, so, so clear, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him, not whoever works, not whoever prays a really good prayer, whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. So folks, I don't think it's stretching the text because of what I read in Romans 4, 16 to say that just as the Jew had, he must, he had to be certain of who he was in order to occupy the city. We have every reason to be able to be certain about who we are. Descendants of Abraham's faith. Reckoned righteous by God. Absolutely certain that we have been justified simply for believing in Jesus Christ. I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you for your word. Thank you again for these truths that are basic, but they are not peripheral. They are essentials. That these details, <coughs> they matter, and that you would have us recall them to mind. I pray, God, that as we place our faith in Christ, and Him alone for our salvation, for eternal life itself, that we would be sure. Because our faith is not in faith, it's not in ourselves, it is simply in the one who is faithful. Faithful and true is your name. You can never be anything other. And I thank you, God, for your faithfulness to us. Thank you, God, for the roles that you place on us, whether it's gatekeeper or singer or or those that have responsibility to teach your word, that in some sense are all rolled in together, we understand. And I pray, God, that we would, because of our faith in Christ, true to, prove to be true as faithful men and women, inspired, God, by our faith in you, that the only explanation for our lives and any virtue that's in us, we would know, is because of Jesus Christ and not because of ourselves. Thank you, God, for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.